chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13 and verse 14. Um, if you have notes, uh, great. If you don't, please make sure you do have some notes. I'm going to read through a couple of scriptures. So Hebrews 9, 13 and 14. And here is what the author of Hebrews said. Pick <clears throat> this up. Um, Hebrews 9, 13, and 14. <clears throat> For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal mm -hmm. spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Amen? It's only two verses. Can we all read it together? So this way it can sink in our brains and our hearts. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctify for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. We've been talking about the book of Hebrews now for 36 weeks, and we again have been talking how the author of Hebrews wrote that book to uh, believers who were Jewish in their background, and now that they became Christian, they're considering going back to Judaism. So the author of Hebrews wrote that book to encourage them never to go back to Judaism. In the first 10 chapters, almost the whole 10 chapters, he's arguing that Christianity and Christ are far more superior than Judaism. Therefore, they should not leave what is superior to go to what is inferior. Amen? We started by seeing how the author of Hebrews argued that Jesus is superior to the prophet, superior to the angels, superior to Moses, and now, starting chapter 5, almost all the way till the end of chapter 10, that's like five or six chapters. That's really the bulk of that letter. The author of Hebrews is arguing that Jesus is superior to Aaron, the high priest of the Old Testament. Amen? We see in that chapter 5, 6, and 7, the author of Hebrews was arguing that Jesus, in his person, is a superior high priest to Aaron in his person. So it's comparing the two people as persons from chapter 5, 6, and 7, and we find that Jesus is a superior high priest than Aaron. Then in chapter 8, 9, and almost the whole chapter 10, the author of Hebrews is arguing that Jesus has a superior priesthood than that of Aaron. Amen? We started with chapter 8. We saw that Jesus ministered in a better sanctuary, superior sanctuary. Jesus ministered or um, was a mediator of a better covenant. And that's chapter 8, verse 7 to 13. And then in chapter 9, where we are today, we see that Jesus has a better ministry. And in chapter 10, we see that Jesus has a better sacrifice. Amen? So let's zoom in onto chapter 9. We, we talked about this before. I'm just reminding you. The first 10 verses of chapter 9, the author of Hebrews is reviewing the Old Testament ministry, right? And then from verse 11 to verse 28, he's arguing the, super, the supremacy and the superiority of the ministry of Christ compared to that of the Old Testament. Amen? And he's pretty much following the exact same footprint. In verse 1 to 10, when he talked about the Old Testament uh, ministry, he started verse 1 by giving an introduction and then introduced his main points. He talked about the earthly sanctuary 
of the Old Testament and the earthly service ministry in the, under the Old Testament regulation. That was verses 2 to 5 and verses 6 to 10. Okay? Now, he followed the exact same logical presentation in verses 11 to 28 when he talked about the supremacy of the ministry of Christ. Verse 11 and 12, which that was two weeks ago, we have seen that the author of Hebrews did his introduction by comparing the Old Testament to the New Testament. And then in his introduction, he highlighted four reasons why the ministry of Jesus is superior than the ministry of uh, Aaron under the Old Testament. You guys are with me? And the four reasons he highlighted in verse 11 to 12, which he discussed in details from verse 12 to verse 28, are these. And number one, <clears throat> because of the power of the blood of Jesus, which he expounded on from verse, um, let's see here, because of the power of his blood. That's verse 13 to 22. It says three, but it's actually 13. 13 to 22. And, and then because, of, because Jesus entered into heaven, that's verse 23 to 24, he expounded there on that. Because he put away sin once and for all, that's verse 25 to 26. And that finally, because Jesus saves from the judgment, which he expounded on in verse 27 to 28. You guys are with me? So you follow the logical thought process of the author of Hebrews and where he's going with all of this, right? Now we're zooming in now, we're... From chapter 9, we're zooming in into verses 13 to 22. Jesus has a superior ministry than that of Aaron because of the power of the blood of Jesus. Amen? And the author of Hebrews in these nine verses is giving us two aspects of the power of the blood of Jesus. The first aspect, which you read about right here in verse 13 to 14, is that Jesus blood is far more powerful than the blood that Aaron used to atone for the people because the blood of Jesus can cleanse the conscience of the sinner. Amen? The blood that Aaron used was not able to cleanse the conscience of the sinner. And then from verse 15 to 22, which I think we're going to talk about next week, that's when the author of Hebrews is telling us that the blood of Jesus is, is more powerful than the blood that Aaron used because the, through the blood of Jesus, or the blood of Jesus served as the reason for the inauguration of a better and new covenant with God. Amen? So you guys follow me so far, right? You see the footprint, you see the layout, the, the thought process here. Now, let's zoom in on verse 13 and verse 14, which we're talking about here today. Amen? All right, so we started from looking at the whole book, and now we're zooming all the way in to these two verses. <clears throat> If you remember, we actually talked about this before, about two and a half years ago, when we talked about the power of the blood of Jesus. So if you remember my sermon from two and a half years ago, I just went back, refined it, and just added a couple of small things, which should be pretty simple for you. All right? Now, if you don't remember, that's good. That will be a brand new sermon for you. <laughs> okay. So let's start in verse uh, 13 and 14. The author of Hebrews says this, For if the blood of, of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer. Does anybody know what the ashes of the heifer here is a reference to? It's a reference to, correct, but what exact ceremony or incidents in the Old Testament that the author of Hebrews is referring to here? Correct, but particularly he's referring to the law of the red heifer, which we talked about when we talked about the shadows of Golgotha, right? How is that a picture of uh, the cleansing of the blood of Jesus that will happen in the New Testament. 
So the law of the red heifer was mentioned in details in the book of Numbers chapter 19. The idea of that law is this. If somebody get ceremonially unclean before God under the Old Testament rules, like if you touch a dead body under the Old Testament, you are unclean before God. So what, what they needed to do back then is find that red heifer, slaughter it as a sin offering, shed their blood and use all the uh, associated uh, ceremony with that. But then they burn it and they take the ashes of that heifer and they sprinkle it on the person who is ceremonially unclean and then he will be pronounced cleansed, right? And the author of Hebrews here is saying this, back in the Old Testament, if the blood of bulls and goats... We talked about this last time when he put bulls and goats in the same sentence. He's mainly referring to the Day of Atonement, right? So he's saying if the blood of bulls and goats and something else, the ashes of the heifer. In other words, by putting these two different ceremonies together, the author of Hebrews is pretty much saying the whole idea of the Old Testament sacrificial system. All the principles, all the sacrifices that was offered in the Old Testament, when it's sprinkled on the unclean, it does has an effect. It cleanses that person, but it doesn't cleanse them from the inside. It cleanses them from the outside. Because an unclean person, if he's sprinkled by the ashes of the heifer or offered sin offering under the Old Testament rules, they are pronounced cleansed, right? They're clean, ceremonially, in the eyes of God. But they only cleanse from the outside, not from the inside. You guys are with me? So the author of Hebrews here is comparing what the blood of the Old Testament sacrifices and the ashes of the heifer was able to accomplish in verse 11 in comparison to what the blood of Jesus can actually do in verse 14. Amen? So he's saying, if the, the blood of ashes and uh, blood of goats and bulls and ashes of heifer was able to accomplish external cleansing, how much more? So now he's pointing out what is greater. How much more shall the blood of Jesus who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. Amen? Through that what, what spirit? Eternal spirit. What is the eternal spirit here that the author of Hebrews is talking about? Is it Jesus' spirit or is it the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit, of course. And describing the Holy Spirit as eternal, that's a sign right here or an indication of the deity of the Holy Spirit, right? That the Holy Spirit is God because it's only God who is eternal. Amen? And by saying that Jesus offered himself through the eternal spirit, the author of Hebrews, in a way, is saying that Jesus was anointed by God. He was divinely appointed and ministering by the power that God has granted him, the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? And we see that not just in the New Testament, but even in the Old Testament. Isaiah 61, verse 1, if anybody remembers that verse. This is a prophecy that Jesus applied to himself in Luke chapter 4. And he started by saying this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach the gospel, to set the captives free, and all this stuff. You guys are with me? So even in the Old Testament, we see that Jesus will be full with the Holy Spirit, anointed by the Holy Spirit, and he will be sent divinely by God to accomplish the plan of salvation. Amen? So Jesus, through the eternal Spirit, Let's read that verse again. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without what? Spot to God. 
The word without spot here, we, we talked about this before as well, means that Jesus was uh, sinless. Just like the sacrifice of the Old Testament that need to be ceremonially perfect, Jesus was also ceremonially perfect before God. Amen? When it comes to Jesus, we're not talking about his physical appearance, like the Old Testament sacrifices. We're talking about his spiritual status with God. Amen? Jesus was spiritually without spot before God because he never committed a sin. He was perfect. He was sinless. He was holy. He was pure. He was without spot. And then he did what? He offered himself. When it says he offered himself, does that mean he did it voluntarily or involuntarily? Or involuntarily? He did it what? Voluntarily. voluntarily. He offered himself. Jesus was not forced to do that. He chose to do that. And why did he choose to do that? Because he loves us. Because his blood would have been the only way for us to be saved. That's why he chose to offer himself to God. And when he offered himself to God, the blood that he shed on the cross did something extremely important. What did it do? It cleansed our conscience from dead work so that we can get to the point of serving the living God. Amen? Amen. The word conscience in, in Greek is actually the word um, sanidesis. It literally means a knowing within. It has two, two parts in it. The first part is with, and the second part is knowledge. So the idea here is that the word conscious, is, it's your inner knowledge, it's your intuition, it's your compass, it's your guidance, your gut in a way that is inside of you that can tell you what is right and what is wrong. You guys are with me? So it's very interesting, and if you remember that from two and a half years ago, in Hebrew, there is no word for conscious. The Hebrew language doesn't have the word conscious in it. The concept of conscious is actually Greek or even Hellenistic. The word Hellenistic means after, after the Old Testament was written, some of the Jews were mingled with the Greek culture, and the Jews that have some Greek culture in them were called Hellenistic Jews. So that's Jews that has Greek culture in it. That's where the Septuagint, the, the Old Testament Greek translation was done. It's in that Hellenistic uh, Jewish um, atmosphere. So it's either uh, Greek or Hellenistic. It, it's, it's foreign to the Hebrew language. It is foreign to the Hebrew culture. It's foreign to the Hebrew mindset that, that we will have that inner compass in us, that inner guidance in us that can tell us what's right and what is wrong. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that what tells us what is right and what is wrong, it is not a guidance from within. It is the word of God from without. You guys are with me? You know what is good and what is evil by knowing God's word and obeying God's word, not by doing what your gut tells you from the inside. Amen? David said this. He said, I desire to do your will, my God. My conscience is within me telling me what is right. Right? What did he say? He said, your law is within my heart. Do you see that idea that it is the law of God in the heart of David is guiding him to know what is right and what is wrong, to do what is moral and versus what is immoral. You guys are with me? That's pretty much the Jewish and the Hebrew concept of the word conscious and what a conscious is. Yet even with that, we see some 
texts here and there in the Old Testament that people can feel guilty when they break the law of God. They have this inner feeling. It is not just um, a law inside of them and just commandments, but they have some sort of feeling inside of them that respond to breaking the law of God. For example, Adam and Eve, when they fell in sin, what happened? They felt the shame of breaking the law of God, the shame of being naked. And out of that shame, out of that guilt feeling inside of them, they ran away from the presence of God and instead of running, running to the presence of God. Amen? In the Bible, when David uh, saw King Saul, and King Saul was asleep, and David cut part of his uh, garment later on to show him that he could have killed him. The Bible said that when David cut that piece of garment, his heart struck him from within. He felt so guilty about break, cutting a piece of Saul's garment. You guys are with me? So even though in Hebrew there's no word for conscience, we can still see pits and pieces that when people do wrong, there's that guilt inside, there's that shame inside, there's that sense from the inside that you have done something you're not supposed to do, and that bears consequences on how people act. Amen? The story is a little bit different in the New Testament. We see the word conscious over and over and over again. Again, partially because this is a Greek concept that developed later on after the Old Testament was already sealed. Um, we read in the New Testament, Paul actually tells us in the book of Romans that those who don't have the law of God, their conscience can act as the law of God within them. You guys are with me? In, he, in, in Romans 2, 14 to 15, here is what Paul was telling us. He's saying, indeed, when Gentiles who didn't have the law of God, who don't have the law, do by nature things required by the law, they are law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, they show, they show the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. So what Paul is telling us here is this, that Gentiles who don't know the law of God that tells us what is right from what is wrong, their conscience within them function as their guidance, as their law to show them what is right and what is wrong. Amen? We see in Titus 1.15 that sin can defile the conscious. We see in 1 Timothy 4.2 that sin can sear the conscious. You guys are with me? The idea of searing here that Paul was referring to in 1 Timothy 4.2 is like this. When you have a piece of steak and you're trying to grill it, they recommend that you put it on a very hot stove, like 500 degrees, the first touch. You put it on 500 degrees. So idea is once you do that, the first layer of that muscle of the meat will, will be seared, right? It will be seared and you lock in all the juices inside that piece of meat. You guys are with me? That is pretty much the same idea that Paul is saying here. He's saying that sin can sear your conscience. Sin can put a, a, an outside heart shell on your conscience that you become in a way numb to what is right and what is wrong. You guys are with me? So sin, according to the New Testament, is a, a, a law written within. It can defile your conscience. It can sear your conscience. And Paul talked about that even more expoundingly later on, or even before that, in Ephesians 4.19, when he talked about the Gentiles who don't know God. And look at this. Look at what, how he described them. Who, being past feeling. Look at these words. Being past feeling. They have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with the 
greediness. I mean, look at, like, the guy can't find enough words to describe how greedy they are in sin. Amen? But look how he described them first. They being past feeling. What does that mean? They just don't, yeah, they're, they're numb. They just don't feel it. They can do, go out and do the, the greatest of sins and they don't feel it. If you, um, like if you think about a serial killer, they probably feel, or serial rapists, or people who do the most hideous crimes. Guess what? After they do it once, or twice, or three times, they just become numb to it, right? They can keep on doing it, and they won't feel a thing. Maybe in the first time they feel guilty, maybe the first time they feel bad, but the more they do it, the more they become numb to it. And they can do the most heinous of crimes, and they won't even feel a thing, right? They were just talking about the... I mean, look at the journalist that was killed in the Turkey embassy. The people killed him, tortured him, and then the news say they were just having so they, the one of the doctors or whatever say, put some music in your ear while you're doing this so you don't, uh, so you don't hear the screaming or whatever. It's just crazy. That's my point. You know, your conscience can be seared to the point that you can commit the most heinous of crimes, inhumane crimes, and yet you don't feel bad about it. Amen? Now, we looked at the idea of conscience in, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew culture and mindset, and the idea of, of conscience in the New Testament. Now let's zoom in a little bit more on the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, the word conscience was mentioned five times. You guys are with me? Hebrews 9.9, 9, Hebrews 9.14, which you just read, Hebrews 10.2, and Hebrews 10.22, and Hebrews 13.18. Five times the word conscience was mentioned in the book of Hebrews. The first four times, it deals with man's conscience toward God, breaking the law of God, and how is that affecting our relationship with God. Amen? In chapter 13, verse 18, it talks about having good conscience toward our fellow human being. So this is not really what we're talking about here. We're not going to look into chapter 13, verse 18, right? We're talking about how sin affects our conscience in our relationship with God, because that's really when the blood of Jesus kicks in and works. So four times we're going to be zooming in. Hebrews 9, 9, 9.14, 10.2, 10.22. We'll read them together so we can have an idea of what the author of Hebrews was telling us. Hebrews 9, 9. We read that last time. That was the passage from uh, last time we spoke from Hebrews. Talking about the Old Testament, and he said this, uh, which was a figure of the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect in pertaining to consciousness. You guys are with me? Or conscious. <coughs> so in Hebrews 9.9, the author of Hebrews says that the Old Testament sacrifice was not able to make the one who does the service perfect in or as pertaining to the conscious. Verse 9.14, we just read it, that the blood of Jesus can purge our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Hebrews 10, 2, we're going to read it uh, when we get to it. For then, uh, talking about the Old Testament again, for then uh, would they not have uh, ceased to be offered, that's the Old Testament sacrifices. Look at this. This is key to understanding how the author of Hebrews understands conscious and what the blood of Jesus can do. Because the worshiper, once purged, should have no more conscious of Sin. This is important. Let's read it together. This is the key. Because the worshippers, once purged, should have no more conscious of sins. 
And then Hebrews 10, 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So, as the author of Hebrews, look at chapter 9, verse 9. He said this, the, the one who trying to approach God, the problem with the Old Testament sacrifices is that it was so weak, it cannot cleanse the conscience of the one who's trying to come close to God, the worshiper or the one who does the service. Amen? And doesn't that remind us or kind of bring back to our memory what happened in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve fell in sin, right? Their conscience starts staring within them. They, they knew they did something wrong. Their eyes were open. They knew they're naked. Their conscience was stirred, stirred within them, and they knew that they did something wrong. So what did they do in response to feeling the consciousness of sin in, in terms of the presence of God? Did they run to the presence of God, or did they run away from the presence of God? They ran away. Because a guilty conscience always makes you run not to God, but from God. Because when you know that you're guilty, and God on the other hand is holy, then you don't want to come close to him because you know you have messed it up, right? And that is the problem that the author of Hebrews was talking about here, apparently, in the whole book. That when you have a guilty conscience, you cannot come close to God. In chapter 9, verse 9, it could not make him who is performing the service. The word performing the service is literally the one who's coming close to God. The one who's being drawn closer to God. He's not perfect as far as his conscience is concerned. Amen? So that is the problem with an uncleansed conscience. It makes you feel guilty and it makes you not want to run to God but run away from God, right? So what does a clean conscience look like? He tells us the answer in chapter 10, verse 2. He says this, the reason why there were many offerings over and over again in, in, in the Old Testament is this, the worshiper who once purged, once cleansed, should have no more consciousness of sin. And since the Old Testament sacrifice could not offer that kind of cleansing, therefore there have been always that consciousness of sin and that constant repetition of the Old Testament sacrifices. You guys are with me? So from that verse, chapter 10, verse 2, what is the lack of consciousness of sin? What is a conscience that is cleansed from sin? It is a conscience that has been clean. You don't feel the defilement of sin. You guys are with me? In the context of the book of Hebrews, uh, a clear conscience is always involved that uh, lack of defilement. You don't feel that guilt. You don't feel that shame. You don't feel that filth mm -hmm. of sin when it comes to your relationship with God. When you feel that you're pure from within, that's when you have a clean conscience. Amen? When you feel that you're guilty and filthy from within, that's when you have an unclean conscience. That is the idea of the author of Hebrews that we read in Hebrews 9.9 9 and Hebrews 10.2 that an unclean conscience from within is the problem that makes us trying to stay far away from God, right? Mm -hmm. And isn't that even our experience, right? When you and I sin, do something immoral or um, whatever sin, regardless, you lie, you steal, you manipulate, you watch something you're not supposed to, you say something you're not supposed to, what is the first thing we try to do? we feel very ashamed and try to run away from God, right? Because we feel that we're guilty from within, that we have done what we're not supposed to. Amen? 
Now, the blood of Jesus is the answer to that guilty conscience. And we read about that in Hebrews 9.14. The author of Hebrews told us that if the sacrifices of the Old Testament was able to cleanse from the flesh from the outside, the blood of Jesus is so powerful to the point that it can actually cleanse our conscience from dead sins so we can serve or approach or come close to the living God. Amen? I just love how William Lane put it, how he explained it, how the blood of Jesus is, is far much stronger than our defilements, and he can, the blood of Jesus can cleanse us from our sins and clean our conscience as well. Lane put it this way. That will be fifth line, I guess, from the last paragraph. He said this, It is the point at which a person confronts God's holiness, the ability of the defiled conscience to disqualify somebody from serving God has been superseded by the power of the blood of Christ to cleanse the conscience from defilement. Isn't that powerful? I'm just going to read this again. It's such an amazing quote that he said. He said this, How the blood of Jesus is so powerful to cleanse our sin? It is the point at which a person confronts God's holiness. The ability of the defiled conscience to disqualify someone from serving God has been superseded by the power of the blood of Christ to cleanse our conscience from defilement. Amen? Amen? And this is awesome. You know, regardless of how many sins you have committed, and every time you feel that guilt and the shame of sin, instead of listening to the lies of the enemy that you cannot come close to God, you should actually put your trust in the power of the blood of Jesus that it doesn't matter how bad you have messed up. The blood of Jesus is still more powerful and you still can come close to God with confidence, not based on your merits, not based because you're a good person, but based on the power of the blood of Jesus to cleanse you from every defilement and make you even worthy to come close to God. Amen? Amen. Amen. And that's what the author of Hebrews expounded on in chapter 10, verse 22. That last verse where he mentioned the word conscious. He said this, let us do what? Draw, run away from God, right? He let us draw near, not run away, let us draw near. Well, how about our guilty conscience? How about our defiled conscience? How about un unclean and filth guilt that we have from within? What should we do with it? Here is the answer. Let us draw near with a true heart of what kind of assurance? Full assurance of faith. Having our heart did what? Sprinkled from an evil conscience. Right? And our bodies washed with pure water. So the author of Hebrews said, we should always have confidence, not just confidence, full assurance, right? That means unwavering, uncompromised, 100% guaranteed assurance that we can always come close to God, draw near to God, right? Even if we have a guilty conscience, an unclean conscience, we can make sure we repent of that sin, have our conscience being sprinkled by the blood of Jesus, and once the blood of Jesus cleanses our guilt and shame, we can go back always to the presence of God with what kind of assurance? Full assurance. Not partial assurance, but full assurance, right? Is it because you're a good person? No. Because of what? Because of the blood of Jesus is all powerful, right? Is it because that you have never sinned? No, but because the blood of Jesus is able to cleanse every sin. You guys are with me? It's not about you and me. It's about Jesus. It's about what he has done. It's about the power of his blood. Amen? Amen. 
And then you can go back to serve the living God. Come close to the living God. And I tell you, as a pastor, this is one of the scriptures that I thank God for every single Sunday morning. You guys are with me? Because to stand here and preach, like, it's, it's I, I love it and such a privilege that the Lord has given me to preach his word. But if you mess up a little bit, then sin is always after you, right? It's saying, how are you going to preach when you have messed it up this week, right? But it's the blood of Jesus that I have to put my trust in him. That it is not because of who I am or how good I am as a person. It's because of how powerful the blood of Jesus is. I still can have full assurance to come close to God, to serve him and worship him. Amen? Amen. And that works for not just the pastor, that works for everyone. Amen? Amen. So never let Satan torture you because of your sins. Put your trust in the full power and authority and cleansing power that is in the blood of Jesus. And know that your conscience can be purified and cleansed once and for all because of what Jesus has done for you. Amen? Amen. The answer to today, the, the motivation from today is this. Let us draw close to God. And in spite of our sins, let's still come close to God. And in spite of our weakness, let us draw close to God. And in spite of our wickedness, let us draw close to God. Amen? Not because we're good people, but we should have that full assurance because we are having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Amen? Amen. Let's close our eyes and pray.